Hello, I'm Joyce Chang, Chair of Global Research, and we're here to discuss the great repricing. With the rise in bond yields, the great moderation is clearly history. We're here to examine the predictions we made at the beginning of the year on the outlook for the markets when we first talked about the great repricings, and we're also making some adjustments to our long-only strategic asset allocation model portfolio. Well, the great moderation is clearly history. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield has crossed 2%. It's rapidly approaching our medium-term target of 2.5%. There's a risk of overshooting, as we're seeing in the markets today, as the markets are very focused on the inappropriate large U.S. fiscal deficit. This is occurring alongside a rise in crude oil prices and higher bond yields, which since the middle of the year have gone up by 30% and 70 basis points, respectively, raising particular concern. So the great repricing we had expected for fixed income has played out for the moment. But more broadly, many of the long-term ideas we discussed are increasingly getting market participants' attention. And this includes the secular rise in real interest rates that we had projected. That's moving even faster than we had feared. Fears of deglobalization, climate change, and also the rise of alternative assets. Now, I want to say that we do not see abrupt deglobalization or de-dollarization. I think some of those fears are over stated. And even for the U.S.-China tensions, this is something that is ongoing rather than sort of a very rapid shift in, uh, in the approach. But I think you will see a slow diversification of financial and economic exposures, particularly in the sectors that are crucial to national security. The more immediate risk, though, in front of us is the speed of the surge in yields at a time where long-term demand for treasuries appears vulnerable and large fiscal deficits need to be funded. This has raised concerns that the U.S. is starting to lose its exceptional funding ability as it is now paying a significant term premium. So how should investors think about these risks in possession for them? To discuss these issues, I am pleased to be joined by Jan Weiss, Long-Term Strategy and Strategic Research, Bruce Kassman, our Chief Global Economist, Alex Weiss from Strategic Research, and Amy Ho from Strategic Research. Jan, let me start with you. We have seen a very dramatic repricing of bonds this past year and a half. Real yields are almost at your longer term target of two and a half percent on the 10 year tips. So what does this mean for future return expectations for both bonds and equities? Many of our investors believe a higher bond yield should bring about a higher equity yield and thus a lower equity multiple. Do you agree with this? And by how much should equity multiples come down? Yes, Joyce. Multiples have changed on equities. Bond yields have changed. And there's a lot of people who believe, indeed, as you see a much higher bond yield, you need a much higher equity yield, a lower multiple. Well, yes, in principle, that's correct. It makes sense, but it doesn't work in practice. When I try to forecast equity and bond returns 10 years out, I find that the current valuation, the yield on bonds, the equity yields on equities, which is the reversal of the multiple, is the one that will drive future returns. So we look simply at your entry point. The one for bonds has massively improved. We've seen a big fall in bond prices, rising in bond yields, your treasury index is now at 5% for the next decade. I-grade has crossed 6% and the aggregate button in the middle over there, 55 
equities now have a multiple just shy of 20. Now you reverse that, you get an equity yield that becomes 5% real. Break-even inflation is about two and a half at the moment. That gets you seven and a half, which is indeed what our broader, more complicated models are spitting out as the equity return for the next decade. Seven and a half versus six on high grade, five and a half on the aggregate. Not that much difference in there. And I can understand that a lot of investors are saying, wait a minute, equities can't stay at 20 times at such a small yield gap towards fixed income. It needs to reprice. And yeah, I, I can see the argument Tom, that we've been testing this time and time. And it's simply, there is very little correlation between bond yields and equity yields. Look at this here. We have a close to now 100 basis points rise in real treasury yields. And the equity yield has come down. The multiple has come up. So, so I'm sticking with it. Um, currently, indeed, not that much difference between uh, aggregate corporates and the overall equity market. So equities will still likely outperform, but not by that much. Thank you so much for those insights, Jan, on the current market conditions. I want to talk about U.S. exceptionalism because 2023 definitely has been a year of U.S. exceptionalism. Now, you've pointed out that it's not just a 2023 story. This has also been the story of the past 35 years. Will U.S. exceptionalism last into this coming year in 2024 and into the 2030s? U.S. exceptionalism in markets, it actually means something quite different from the political world, where we have the U.S. seeing itself as the shining beacon of liberty and democracy in the world. In markets, it means outperformance, equity returns, and an ability for the government and corporates to much more easily fund themselves than any other government or corporate. Now, in equities, uh, the U.S. has indeed outperformed. 35 years ago, you put $100 in the U.S. equity market. You now have 3500 fully reinvested. You put that same $100 in the rest of the world 35 years ago, you barely have $700. U.S. outperformed times five over that period. U.S. companies basically are very innovative. Um, they've been able to use globalization much better than companies in the rest of the world and on an economy that has not outperformed the rest of the world. So globalization, technology has been a lot more beneficial for US companies and shareholders than for its economy. I was quite worried, I must say, that this would not last, that there will be a backlash against corporate profit margins, and that the Biden administration would be bringing antitrust back to reduce the power of the large corporates, US corporates. Well, uh, they're doing that. They bring it back, but it doesn't have that much impact. Global agreements on raising corporate taxation are not really going anywhere. Technology, the new AI technology is, yes, the whole world is using it. But again, the U.S. companies that are best at uh, implementing it. 
and turning it into profits. So uh, I had to give up on my earlier idea that the U.S. would start to underperform um, against the rest of the world. And I'm, I'm simply going neutral on that. I think the risk is indeed that U.S. exceptionalism in markets will continue. Thank you very much, Jan. And what we have seen is that sort of betting against the U.S. is something that just has not worked out in the past. Let me now turn to Bruce to talk about the economic outlook. So, Bruce, thank you so much for joining us today. Bruce, your baseline scenario is for an early end to the U.S. and the global expansion. But can you tell us what underlies that forecast and how deep do you see in the coming recession and how are you looking at timing? Our baseline scenario is what we've been calling the boiling the frog uh, outcome in which the Fed and other central banks are forced to maintain restrictive policies. And over time, that stance creates an environment where we restrain demand, uh, we tighten credit conditions, and through the combination of those forces, we gradually create an underpinning of the health of the private sector. Um, that is a story which we think will play out gradually. We don't think it's likely to uh, generate recession in the next number of months. And we see some of the things that's happening now, including the rise in longer term interest rates as the market begins to price in a high for long stance from the Fed and other central banks as being consistent with that. Now, I think when we talk about the depth of the downturn, there's always a tendency to distinguish mild and deep recessions. I think one point to keep in mind here is even the mild recessions we've had uh, since World War II have not been mild events. They've had significant impacts on labor markets, significant damage done to uh, credit markets and asset prices more generally, and have reverberated both over space and time. Um, so I think even if we can consider a mild event like um, in comparison to the global financial crisis, which is which was very much a traumatic event, uh, I don't think we should look at this as a mild situation once we slide into recession. Uh, and I think in addition, the underlying source of what keeps central bank policy tight, which is persistent high inflation due to damage caused by the pandemic to the supply side, due to shifts in uh, psychology as a result of two years plus of persistently high inflation. These are forces which are present not just in the US, but in Europe and elsewhere. So once we have a downturn, we think it's more likely than not that it's going to be synchronized across the globe. Thank you so much for that, Bruce. So, you know, the assumption of a soft landing is one that I think you know, could be challenged next year. So, Bruce, let me just ask you a follow-on question. What do you think are the prospects for an alternative soft landing scenario, given the challenges that you've laid out? Like, where would you put the odds and how do you define a soft landing? So, while our baseline scenario is for this boiling the frog narrative to unfold, uh, we're by no means ignoring the possibility that we could achieve this uh, hope for soft landing. What is a soft landing? Well, from our point of view, a soft landing is an ability of the Fed and other central banks to engineer uh, an inflation outcome that's consistent with their objectives and put the US and global economy on a path where we can have a sustained expansion once that tightening phase is over. I'll say three years as a broad um, a number that seems to me to be consistent with uh, what I would uh, believe a soft landing is. Uh, it's not our baseline view, as I've said. However, we do think the case for a soft landing is not that far out of reach here. The inflation news has been um, uh, better than we had expected up until this point, and we might be 
underestimating the improvement that are going on on the supply side, both in terms of uh, U.S. productivity growth, as well as labor force growth, which has been uh, moving uh, up nicely across most of the uh, advanced economies. Uh, I would also um, emphasize that uh, the recent revisions to income that we've seen in the U.S. are showing less deterioration on corporate and household balance sheets. Vulnerabilities building as a result of tight monetary policy is clearly one of the forces that are embedded in our uh, boiling the frog uh, scenario. And so far, the clock on these things are moving more gradually. So with more resilience as a result of that uh, picture and with the possibility that we get surprised by lower inflation, uh, there is a chance that we could grind this out, uh, get to a situation where inflation comes down and then central banks can take their feet off the uh, break and possibly put us in place for that soft landing scenario. Right now, we put about a 40% odds of that scenario versus the 60% odds of some kind of boiling frog scenario where recession doesn't happen in the next three to six months, but sometime in 24 or uh, early 2025. Thank you so much, Bruce, for laying the um, setting for the macro outlook. And I'd like to now turn and talk more about um, the dollar. Alex, how much higher do you think yields can rise? Jan has mentioned that we're very close to the longer term target of two and a half percent. Do you think that yields will go much higher from here or are we at the peak over the near term? So we currently sit at around a 2.3% real yield on 10-year U.S. Treasuries, which is actually starting to get quite close to our longer-term target of about 2.5% real yield. Uh, in short, I would be surprised if real yields move much higher from here. I think the moves that we've seen in the past couple of months to a large degree reflect the market's accumulation of monetary tightness story trajectory of fiscal debt and the magnitude of treasury issuance. Looking at some of the longer term forces like demographics, some of those play out at a much lower frequency. So I wouldn't expect to see the full effects manifest for at least a couple of years yet. That said, fiscal debt and macro volatility are two forces in our framework. So I certainly see the recent rise in real yields as being more than purely cyclical. I think it does speak to some of the longer term forces that we have been talking about. Let's talk about the dollar. We've heard a lot about de-dollarization. How big a risk is this over the near term? Is this overstated? I don't see de-dollarization as a very substantial risk in the near term. What I think you will continue to see is invoicing of trade like in commodity markets, in currencies other than the dollar. But I don't expect that these changes will undercut the dominance of the dollar in a meaningful way or in a way that is macroeconomically consequential, like for the determination of interest rates in the US, for example. I think this story becomes a bigger factor at play over the horizon of 10 years and more. The fundamental force driving that change is essentially, in my view, geopolitical tensions and geopolitical competition. What I do expect that you will see over the coming decade is a marginal de-dollarization. So a movement on the margin, but still not enough to totally undermine the dominance of the dollar. However, that could be accelerated by substantial shocks to the economic and political stability of the United States or reforms that advance the credibility of the Randian beat. 
as an alternative reserve currency. So de-dollarization, Alex, thank you for your comments, is something that's happening very slowly. But let's just talk about the strength of the dollar. This year, we have seen that the dollar has not fallen because of the resilience of the U.S. economy. It's withstood rate hikes much better than expected. Medium term, however, do you see a lower dollar? And the dollar now is at a 40-year high in real terms. In the short term, fundamentals like interest rates and growth are clearly the most important driver of exchange rates. In that context, with the narrative of US resilience, if anything, gaining strength, I don't think it's particularly surprising that you've seen sustained strength of the dollar. However, when you look at longer horizons over the course of years and out to 10 years, which is our primary horizon that we look at, what you see is that the the influence of these factors like interest rates or growth diminishes very substantially. What you find unambiguously is that the best predictor based on historical evidence and data is real exchange rate mean reversion. If you look at the real exchange rate, the US dollar is extremely expensive in the historical context at the moment, which history shows is a very clear longer term negative signal on dollar valuation. Amy, let me come to you. So we've argued and you've heard that the fears on deglobalization are overstated, but what we have seen is a resurgence in industrial policy everywhere, but particularly in the United States and in China. Can you tell us specifically how this is playing out in the U.S.? Thank you so much, Joyce. So we really have seen that deglobalization has been this triumph of narrative or reality. There were some major concerns that trade would be divided under this concept of friendshoring. So like on one hand, you had democracies trading with other democracies and on the other autocracies trading with other autocracies, but that hasn't really come to fruition yet. Nevertheless, world trade has been slowly retreating relative to world GDP since the global financial crisis. Global supply chain disruptions caused by COVID-19 and the Russian invasion of Ukraine have really led to this resurgence in industrial policy by G7 countries. We have seen a share of industrial policy uh, increasing. It went from about 18% in 2009 to 46% in 2019 as governments really seek to reduce dependency on foreign suppliers, and that's through boosting domestic production. This trend is likely to continue amongst the U.S., China and the EU. In the US in particular, industrial policy has become this national security issue as the focus is increasingly on securing supply chains based on these relationships with trusted partners. Under the Biden administration, you have had the Chips and Science Act, which puts about $50 billion into domestic semiconductor manufacturing, while the Inflation Reduction Act brought about nearly $400 billion in funding for clean technology. However, China still remains the world's number one industrial policy spender by a factor of 10 and spends about 1.73% of its GDP on industrial policy alone. This includes fiscal outlays, tax breaks, below market credit, and other kinds of subsidies. By comparison, South Korea is a distant second place at about 6.67% of GDP for industrial policy spend, while the U.S. spent about 0.39% of its GDP. And tariffs are really no longer the principal instrument of industrial policy, 
as you can see from the recent White House executive order on outbound investments, that also suggests that export restrictions may be favored over sanctions going forward. Recently introduced policies include a rise in targeted incentives by governments via subsidies and investments, which include greater government funding in promoting innovation research and onshore production. So now, Joyce, let me turn to you as we have seen the substantial foreign outflows from China as de-risking and diversification take hold. What are the current trends that you see in foreign portfolio flows and FDI flows to China? And how are you seeing the longer term outlook? Well, thanks so much for that question, Amy. Let me start by saying that the re-rating of China risk premium by portfolio investors, in our view, is a structural, not a cyclical phenomenon. We see that uncertainty about regulatory measures have hurt domestic private sector confidence. So this has implications beyond foreign investment. And the regulatory measures so far have reflected the government's focus on supporting public sector-led technology innovations and manufacturing upgrades. And this has raised questions on whether there is a level playing field. Looking at the portfolio flows, we've seen that roughly half of the 250 to 300 billion of inflows that accompany China's inclusion in the mainstream government bond indexes since 2019 has exited. And we've seen that the U.S. investment in China private equity and venture capital has fallen by more than 50%. And that will go down even further with the White House executive order. But this year, 2023 also marks a significant deterioration of foreign direct investment flows, which are at a 26 year low. That is a sharp reversal from the peak that we saw in 2021, when China received gross foreign direct investment flows of 334 billion. Now, the risks that spill over to the global financial markets were asked a lot of questions about this, but we think this is relatively low. The foreign holdings of China's Asia market are small at about 5%, and foreign holdings of Chinese government bonds are around 25 to 3%. The bigger concern is China's growth slowdown, um, and particularly what this means for emerging markets. Um, we do see China being able to achieve the 5% growth target this year. But looking ahead, we see that unless reforms are taken, China's potential growth, given the demographics um, and the patterns we see, coming down to 3%. We've gotten a lot of questions about the headwinds that are facing China and the parallels to Japan in the early 1990s. But there's one very important difference. The balance sheet recession is not yet a reality because the government has been um, committed to stabilization of the prices of houses. So we have not seen the type of correction that occurred um, in Japan. But there is going to continue to be focus on the debt burden for China, the financial risk from the financial, uh, the, the financial risk from the property sector and government financing vehicles has escalated. That's raised concerns about systemic defaults. We think that uh, the default rate for China high yield property could increase to nearly 30% this year. But systemic default um, for the local government vehicles, we don't think is likely. At the city and the provincial level, governments are going to mobilize eligible funding resources to avoid outright debt default, especially the default of publicly traded local government financing vehicle bonds, because this would actually create a lot of contagion risk at spillover. Thank you so much, Jan, Bruce, Alex, and Amy for your insights. Well, we have adjusted our strategic asset allocations to reflect the long-term risk. These long-term risks are climate change, U.S.-China tensions, the tech AI boom, demographics, and the rising 
government debt that we see across developed markets. We think that these risks are more impactful than what is priced in. Now, the majority of these risks, tech excluded, should bring higher interest rates, upward pressure on prices and inflation, and a weaker dollar as well as lower growth, and higher macro and market volatility and risk premium. This is a world that's going to benefit the active investor. Thank you so much for joining us today, and stay tuned for future episodes of JP Morgan TV, where we explore the latest developments in financial markets and the macro story.